0: Um like Keisha said, we will collect those boxes over the next couple of weeks you could you can bring them next week on the nineteenth though two weeks from today is when we'll we'll do like the big collection We'll pray over those boxes they'll be taken to uh the collection center where they'll get processed and then ready to be sent off so um you can. Uh, there were boxes out there. We had some. They're all gone. So use your own shoe box. Um, bring those over the next couple of weeks. We'll get them sent off. Um, LCF has done Operation Christmas Child for a long time. Those boxes are, are can be not just like a huge blessing in a child's life, but also a powerful way that the gospel is shared in communities all around the world. So we encourage you to take part of that. in that if, if you're able or if you want to. Bring them and we'll get them sent off on November 19th. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 19. One of the benefits to the way that we structure preaching and series around here, which is we just take whole books of the Bible or long sections, passages of Scripture, and we work through them week over week over week, verse by verse. One of the benefits of that is that uh, you don't get to skip things like Genesis chapter 19. You come to it and you just have to take it head on, which is what we're going to do this morning. And so without any preamble, we're just going to read the whole thing. It's 38 verses. It'll take us a few minutes to read through the entire passage, but if you have a Bible open there in front of you, I invite you to follow along. This is Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, "'Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men, because they have come under the protection of my roof.'" "'Get out of the way,' they said, adding, "'This one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them.'" They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door, But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angels said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? A son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. "'Get up,' he said. "'Get out of this place "'for the Lord is about to destroy the city.' "'But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. "'At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, "'Get up, take your wife and your two daughters "'who are here, or you will be swept away "'in the punishment of the city.' "'But he hesitated. "'Because of the Lord's compassion for him, "'the men grabbed his hands, his wife's hand, "'and the hands of his two daughters.' And they brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to, it's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, All right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man in the land to sleep with us as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night, they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and the chance to spend time taking communion and reflecting on just the extent of your mercy. God, I pray that We would never lose sight of just the true depth of our sin. The the cost that Jesus paid that our sin might be forgiven by your grace and the reality of the mercy that's been shown to us. God, would you help us to see those with clarity this morning? Would we see with clarity the reality of of just judgment for sin? Would we see with clarity what Jesus has done in our place? Would we see with clarity the wonder of your mercy? Would your spirit open our hearts and minds, God, so that we can just, in a sober way, be reminded of all of those realities? God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to name a little bit of tension as we get started here. For some, when we said that we were going to continue through uh, with the rest of Genesis, our initial plan was to stop at Genesis chapter 11. When when we said we were going to go through the rest of the book, after you tried to calculate how long it would take us to do all 50 chapters, some may have sort of put like a mental bookmark in chapter 19. Maybe because of certain friendships or relationships that you have, you were a little anxious about the way that this passage would be handled. Maybe because you have a specific desire for passages that deal with the topic of sexuality and sexual immorality to be handled in certain ways, you bookmark Genesis 19 as a sort of litmus test for either this church or for me as the pastor. Maybe Because of the ongoing topic of judgment, as we've seen it in the book of Genesis, and and maybe like the emotional or intellectual or or even spiritual challenges you have with that topic, you just knew we would get to Genesis 19 and we'd like circle back around to that topic one more time. For some, you might not have consciously done any of that, but now that you're here, you find yourself a little bit nervous about how this whole thing's going to go this morning. For some... We just read that passage and you thought to yourself, oh Lord, help this guy. (laughs) And for others, you might be looking around thinking, I knew we should have stayed for the end of the Chiefs game. (laughs) Regardless of where you might fall on all of that, I want to start this morning by offering a brief word of what I hope is sort of affirmation to, to where your heart is. Look, my goal this morning is to do what I strive and what we strive to do every Sunday morning when we're together. We're gonna to work through the passage and try to understand it in context. We're gonna to seek to apply the passage as best we can, both to ourselves and to our current cultural context. And we're gonna look through the passage to Jesus and to the gospel in order to remind our hearts and our minds of how beautiful the gospel is and that Jesus is the thing that both all of Scripture and all of life is ultimately supposed to point to and culminate in. It would be disingenuous to do differently than that this morning just because of the passage. It would be a disservice to the text. It would be a disservice to you all. And so... Uh, We're going to do what we always do. I hope the tone matches the tone that if you attend here or have for a long time, I hope the tone matches the tone that you would have come to expect um, from me and from our church, even in this particular passage. And so I I just want to start with sort of like, let's just walk through what happens. If I were to sort of summarize in my own words what takes place in Genesis chapter 19, the first thing that happens is that the passage tells us that lot has become a person of prominence in the city of sodom now it doesn't just come out and say that it's buried in the context we're told that the angels approached the city in the evening and lot is seated at the gate of the city of sodom an ancient near eastern reader would understand that the gate is where most of an ancient city's like business and like legal transactions took place and that the people who were seated there were sort of like the movers and the shakers in that particular city. So Lot has has become one of those people over time. There's been a progression for Lot over the last six chapters in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 13, when Lot and Abraham end up parting ways because the land is not where they are, isn't like fertile enough to support all of their flocks and all of their herds. We're told in Genesis 13, 12, that Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. In the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 14, there's this sort of weird uh, international political military situation in which Abraham has to go and rescue Lot because he's been taken captive by some foreign kings genesis 14 12 told us that they also took abraham's nephew and his possessions for he was living in sodom now in genesis chapter 19 he's seated there at the gate as a prominent person within the city so he was near the city as kind of like a stranger on the outskirts he moved into the city as a resident and now he's become like a prominent citizen of the place by genesis chapter 19 and the roller coaster that is Lot in this passage, takes off from that point. He does, to his credit, and there's not a lot to credit the man with in the chapter, to his credit, he does attempt to offer standard hospitality to these visitors, just like Abraham did when they came and visited Abraham. He goes out, he bows to the ground, he greets them, he says, why don't you come in? I'll give you something to eat and a place to stay. You can take off early in the morning they kind of demure. They say, nah, we'll just sleep in the city square. And Lot, whether because he knows the nature of the place where he lives and the danger that it would pose to sleep out in the city square, or because they're just doing like a standard little back and forth that's not all that foreign to us. If your in-laws say, hey, we're coming into town next weekend. We know you're really busy. We'll just get a hotel room. You think to yourself, perfect. I'll tell you which hotel's right? But that's not what you say out loud. Out loud, you say, no, 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 we would love to have you come stay with us at our house. No, we know it's, it's a hectic time for you. It is a hectic time for us. No, come on, stay at our house, right? You, they do this back and forth kind of thing where eventually the angels, the visitors say, okay, we'll stay at your house. Lot rushes off. The meal that he brings to them, there's an important little phrase there, it's unleavened bread back at Abraham's house. They like kneaded flour and did the whole thing because it was afternoon and there was time for them to make a full meal. It's evening now. These visitors want to go to bed, presumably, so he brings out unleavened bread and some other stuff. They eat, they go to bed, and the whole thing goes off the rails. A mob shows up at the house. Catch the way in verse four that Moses or the author of Genesis wants you to understand the scene. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. You're supposed to understand that this is not like a minority chunk of rabble-rousers within the city who show up. You're You're just supposed to understand that everyone is there because this would be like normative activity for the people of Sodom. Everyone's involved. And their request is for Lot to send his visitors out so that the mob can know them, have relations with them. Your translation might say that. Or the CSB cuts all the nuance and just says, have sex with them. Just get right to the point. Okay, then Lot steps outside. And one sentence looks valiant. He kind of squeezes out, the, like there's a crowd there. You get the, he like opens the door just enough. And he kind of squeezes out and closes it behind him. And he says, hey, don't do this evil thing. He's going to protect his visitors, right? And in, then in the next breath, he says, here are two of my daughters. Do with them whatever you want. Bonus, they've never had sex with anyone before. The mob is not satisfied by that particular proposition. In fact, they're, they're now offended or angry with Lot. Like this foreigner is now trying to be our judge. We'll do worse to you than we were going to do to them. And we're told then, verse nine, the back half, they put pressure on Lot. That's not like peer pressure. It's not like they tried to haggle him to agree to what they wanted to do. They're physically, put. they're pressing up against the house and against Lot, trying to break down the door. And the next thing that happens feels like it's out of a cartoon. The angels, the visitors from inside, open up the door and they just reach out and grab him and like yank him back inside. And in the cartoon, it's like his clothes would still be standing there in the shape of a human as he has been ripped back inside the house. They shut the door and there's a hurried conversation. Do you have anyone else related to you in the city? Sons-in-laws, sons daughters you need to get them and you need to leave why because the outcry against this city matches the reality and the lord has sent us to destroy this place so then in another what appears to be like positive for lot he's i do have some family he steps back outside because he's got two sons-in-law in the mob and so now he's appealing to two members of the mob, you've got to get out of here. The Lord is going to destroy the place. And they laugh at him. Think he's joking. What do you mean he's gonna destroy the place? It is crazy old the in-laws, a crazy guy. What what is he talking about? We're told that the sun starts to come up, verse 15, it's daybreak. The angels say to Lot, look, just get up, take your stuff, take your wife get out of here. The destruction is coming. And then Lot hesitates. Like He doesn't want to leave. All of this is happening. And now he's thinking like, I kind of want to stay. We're told the Lord has like compassion. And for the second time, the angels put physical hands on them, grab them and run them out of the city get them outside the city and they tell them you need to run away from here flee to the mountains and you will be spared we the destruction can't start until you get out of here to which lot says i don't want to go to the mountains what about this little city over here it's not a big city it's just a little city i could go to that place instead the angels acquiesce to that okay you can go to that place as soon as he gets there We're told now the sun has risen all the way over the land. Lot gets to this place called Zoar and then destruction begins. And the scene at that point is that Lot's wife, seemingly sad over everything that she's left behind in Sodom, stops at the edge of Zoar, turns around and looks back towards Sodom and she meets her own judgment at that point and then the final piece of that judgment account flashes back to abraham He wakes up in the morning he steps out of his tent he goes back to the cliff or the hill that overlooks the cities of the plain down there by the dead sea and he can see the smoke rising from the lord's judgment and moses ends the account by drawing our attention back to the ultimate purpose So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. Covenant faithfulness. And out of that remembering and out of that covenant, what did he do? He brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval. You get to verse 29 and it's like, let me take a breath. Only for the last nine verses to be no better than the previous 29 verses. Lot seemingly afraid of something in Zoar where he thought he could seek refuge, has now fled to the mountains where God told him to go initially in the first place. And he's living in a cave. All of the the men in that whole area are dead because of the judgment. And Lot's daughters say, we need to have kids somehow. Let's get dad drunk and we'll sleep with him and perpetuate the family line so on one night the older sister goes in on the second night the younger sister goes in we're told that the children that they give birth to are the end up being like the family heads of the Moabites and the Ammonites who end up being prominent people groups throughout the Old Testament and what comes of Lot at the end of the whole thing looks strikingly similar to what came of Noah at the end of the flood account judgment for sin came upon the earth in the flood account upon sodom here in genesis 19 one family was spared by god's grace noah's family in the flood lot's family here and at the end of it all there's the head of the family noah or lot drunk naked and ensnared in sexual sin the whole thing reminds us that so long as there are human beings around sin will be present Okay, so some items worth mentioning. As uh, On Monday or Tuesday during the week as our pastoral staff is just sort of talking about the passage and getting ready for this weekend, uh, one, one of our pastor, other pastors asked me, are you nervous about preaching this section of Genesis? I said, I'm nervous about having to read it out loud three times. It's heavy and dark and... Uh, uncomfortable, like you sort of want to giggle because you're awkward, like while you're, I'm nervous about that. There's always a certain kind of reverence for any passage of scripture, but I'm not like nervous about the topic because of the way that we preach. If you've been along for the Genesis journey here, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 19 and, and read it, the point is just obviously not to pin down the nature of the sexual immorality taking place within Sodom. That specific incident of sin isn't even the whole reason for their judgment. It's not that... God sent two angels into Sodom just to sort of like check the place out and they get there and they're like, oh, it's got a nice little city square. We can maybe sleep there tonight. Oh, look at this guy. He's offering us a place to stay. What is happening with these people? They're sent there for judgment. That's coming. And we already have seen last week, we looked at like, what's the full reason for that? Like there's the use of this word outcry that points to an oppression or a mistreatment of particular people. There's Ezekiel who looks back. He's comparing Israel at the time of the exile to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. And he said that there was this pride that existed there, like a haughtiness within their heart. And these detestable acts. And so the sexual immorality there is evidence of the reason the judgment is coming. But it's not that the angels showed up looking for a reason to judge the city they already knew that's why they were sent there. If you came to the Fritzen house, your whole reason for coming was because you were going to bring judgment upon Tim Fritzen. We had you in for the night, you were eating dinner with us, and you watched me just outright lie to my wife. Complete falsehood right to her face. Judgment came, it got written down, and for thousands of years, people said, He got judged because he lied. I would look back and say, you don't know the half of it. Lying is an evidence of the fact that my sin deserved judgment, but it's only like one symptom of something that exists very, very deep within me. Yeah, the lying would be indicative of the sin present in my life, but it wouldn't be the whole story And so we can't act as though the the sexual immorality present is anything other than sexual immorality. It would be disingenuous also for me to say, but lying was never a problem to begin with. No, that's not true. So we have to be honest about what's going on. But at the same time, we can't act as though the sexual immorality present is either the point of the passage or the entirety of the reason for God's action. I say all of that to say this. Genesis 19 has become one of a number of passages within Scripture that have have become like ground zero for like a culture war about particular expressions of sexual immorality in our world. But to use this particular passage as like a blunt force object to prove a point in that culture war is unfaithful to the picture that Genesis 19 is trying to lay out. The point of Genesis 19 is not the nature of Sodom's Sodom's sexual immorality. The point of the passage is that judgment is just and mercy is available. This passage and all others like it in the Old Testament ought not to send us running to look for people to either condemn or correct or to call down judgment upon. This passage and all others like it in the Old Testament ought to send us weeping over the reality of sin. We should weep over the fact that there are scores of human beings in our culture and around the world who are enslaved to their sin. if you believe what the Bible has to say about who God is, then the reality of sin and the just judgment for that sin ought to be heartbreaking for us. To just stay in the passage. Like, we should weep over the fact that the reality of sin means that there are people who are victimized by the reality of sin. Lot wants to trot his daughters out there. That's ah, fine, do whatever you want to them. Like, we should be heartbroken over that. We should weep over the ways in which we are often enslaved to sin. We should weep over the people who are victimized by the reality of our sin. The point of the passage is that the Lord will bring judgment and mercy into the world in response to the presence of sin. So let me work through both of those. Genesis is introducing us to the God of the universe. Like, What's he like? What's his character? What are his plans? How does he interact with humanity? One of the things that we see Genesis chapter 3, the flood account, the Tower of Babel account, even Cain and Abel, what we see here in Genesis chapter 19, is that judgment is what sin deserves. I'll say that another way. Judgment is what my sin deserves. Judgment is what my lying deserves. Judgment is what my gossip and my slander deserve. Lying is what my pride in all of its forms deserve. Judgment is what my unjust just treatment of people deserves. Judgment is what my greed and my gluttony deserves. Judgment is what my harsh words and my unrighteous anger deserve. Judgment is what any and all evidence of sexual brokenness in me deserves. I don't wanna be theoretical about that. Like when, when I run onto like social media And I post a photo on Instagram or I make a post on Facebook and something inside of me wants to present a particular image of myself out into the world that's curated in a certain way so people think of me a certain way. That pride and the dishonesty of that deserves judgment to which you say, oh, come on, Tim, it's just a photo on Instagram, to which I would say, exactly, like, it's just a photo on Instagram. So what is broken inside of me that would make me want to create a false image to project out into the world so that people would think more highly of me? My, my pride deserves judgment. Or like I'm, I'm with a group of people, I'm, I'm with a group of friends and the conversation about another individual who's not present turns uncharitable and unkind and slanderous. And it's not that I just passively sit there and let the conversation happen. I participate. I laugh. And we say to ourselves, oh, come on, like everybody does that. And isn't that the point? Yeah, everyone is broken by the realities of sin in all of its forms and judgment is what sin deserves. So when I read something like this passage, rather than thinking about all the sin out there that I think deserves judgment, I ought to be sobered by all of the sin in here that deserves judgment. You might say to yourself, okay, but one of the reasons why Genesis 19 or the flood account is interesting to me is because I can't figure out why sin deserves judgment. Well, God is creator of the universe. He's ruler of the place that he has created. Genesis is laying that out for us. And in response, humanity can either live in agreement and alignment with him and his authority or can live in enmity and opposition to him. And his authority. That's the question in Genesis chapter 3. Agreement and alignment with God as Lord and Creator of the universe, or opposition and rebellion to him in that role. You can either humbly receive his Lordship, or you can sinfully resent it and oppose it. And it is the opposition or the defiance that puts us at odds with God. It is the opposition or the defiance that is an offense to his infinite righteousness and holiness injustice and so my lying or gossiping or slandering my unjust treatment of people my greed my gluttony my anger any or in all of my sexually broken heart and behavior all of that is at odds with the God of the universe and that deserves or earns or merits me just judgment okay so then your question might be well what about people who don't know about God How can it be fair for them to be judged if they don't know? To which I would go right back to our passage and say, I think the point of the conversation that Abraham has with God in Genesis chapter 18 is that there aren't any people here in Sodom who know about Yahweh and his covenant faithfulness. And yet, when Lot steps outside the door and he says, don't do this wicked and evil thing, what is their response? Don't judge me, foreigner. Right, like they know Something's broken. And yet it's offensive to them that someone else would come in and tell them that what they're doing is evil and broken. We're seeing the character and the person of God laid out for us in the early chapters of Genesis. He's ruler, he's judge, he's just, and he's merciful. Because mercy is what God has made available to us in Jesus. The biggest conundrum in Genesis chapter 19, despite all the other quandaries we've tried to like force upon it, is that Lot would get saved? Lot. Like we're all reading the same thing, right? That guy gets saved, like physically saved by God Two separate times, Lot, the guy who offers his daughters to the mob, that guy gets saved, Lot, the guy who hesitates when God tells him, hey, we're going to destroy the place, you should get out of here. I don't know if I want to. That guy gets saved, Lot, who gets out of town and God says, just run that way as far as you can out into the mountains. And Lot says, but what about this little place? I could go there. That guy gets saved, That's the beauty of mercy. And the whole thing is like, huh? Okay, like, I guess I can get behind the idea of God's judgment being just, but then that guy deserves just judgment. How does he not? I'm like, that's the beauty of mercy. In order for mercy to be merciful, judgment has to be a real thing. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I mean, Lot doesn't get saved because he's practically righteous, right? All of his behaviors are not righteous. We talked about that last week. Lot gets saved because he's positionally, covenantally righteous. And that's what God's mercy is all about. Lot has that. And it's not me claiming that. Scripture says so. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. If he, that's God, rescued righteous Lot. Huh? Huh? Like, are we talking about the same lot? If God rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Three times, Peter tells you, Lot was righteous. That has to be based on something other than his behavior. It must be because of covenant righteousness and God's gracious, merciful covenant faithfulness. On this side of the cross, that's what we have extended to us in Jesus. God, the just and deserving judge of the world, The story of the Bible from Genesis chapter three onward is that God will restore all of his creation. He will redeem a people to himself by his grace for his glory through his son, Jesus, this child of promise. Look, the second Peter passage goes on to say that God knows how to rescue the godly and punish the wicked at the same time. And that's what Genesis 19 is trying to show you. That in the manifold wisdom of God, Judgment and mercy exist alongside one another in perfect harmony. But go back to Genesis chapter 18. What does Abraham think? It's got to be all one or all the other. If there are 50 righteous people there, God, would you save the entire place? God says, I would do that. Okay, what if there are 10 righteous people there? Would you save the entire place? It's either got to be all mercy or all judgment. What's God know? There's one guy there. And I can do both things at the same time. Just judgment and unthinkable mercy at once. That's what we've seen throughout Genesis up to this point. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin. It is just punishment for them to have to leave the garden. And it's unthinkably merciful that they're breathing when they do so. It is just judgment in Genesis chapter six that if all the inclinations of every human being are only evil all the time, it's just judgment for God to do something about that sin. And it's unthinkably merciful that he would shut Noah and his family into the ark in order to save them. Here in Genesis chapter 19, You get the picture of the totality of the sin of the people of Sodom. It's just judgment for God to judge that. And it's unthinkably merciful that he would grab Lot by the hand and run him out of the city. The cross is where that happens for us now. All the sin of all of the world demands just judgment and it is unthinkable mercy that Jesus went to that cross and not you, not me. Right from the start, Genesis is showing us that God can be just and merciful at the same time. He can bring just righteous judgment to sin while extending mercy all at once. And sometimes in conversations with people who are either biblically skeptical or sort of skeptical about Christianity, they think it's gotta be all one or all the other. Either God is totally merciful or he is entirely justice and judgment and angry. And you can just reject that premise right off the top because the Bible rejects that premise right from the start. He doesn't have to function on your binary. He's entirely both. And he can be both at the same time. In numerous ways, Genesis 19 passage and all of its characters from this side of the cross point us to and remind us of the power of Jesus and the mercy of God as they intersect with the reality of sin. And so I'm gonna walk through each of these characters pretty briefly. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here. We'll start with Lot. Lot reminds us that it is possible to detest the world while mirroring its behaviors and enjoying its pleasures. Lot, don't do this evil thing. Do this evil thing instead. That's a strong warning for us. Follower of Jesus, we have to be careful lest we end up like Lot, simultaneously detesting and decrying the sin of our world while mirroring and enjoying its offerings. We take Genesis 19, we kind of make it a polemic against a specific type of sexual sin and we sort of, we sort of decry and, and detest that particular sin while we're engaging with pornography while we're sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage I, I hate the sin of the world I kind of like the sin of the world Church, would our outcry against sin outside of us never outpace our willingness to have sin sanctified inside of us? We have to allow the gracious love of Jesus to shine a spotlight into all the dark corners and shady hiding spots of our hearts. And there's comfort in the gospel. Why? Because we can allow him to do that knowing that he's not repulsed by or scared of or unaware of or unwilling to engage with us in our sin. He's merciful. Lot's daughters. Lot's daughters remind us that you can take the person out of Sodom, but you must also take Sodom out of the person. It isn't uncommon to hear followers of Jesus talk about wishing they could just like kind of fly to the mountains or to some commune or something like that and hide from the culture and shut the world out entirely. Here's the problem. You'd be taking you with you. Right? I mean like Lot and his daughters get saved from Sodom and there they are in this cave, totally off the grid, right? They brought them with them and the sin is still there. Like, our great hope for freedom from sin isn't to change locations Our great hope for freedom from sin is to have all of our heart's longings filled not with a lust for sin, but with a love for Jesus. Our great hope for freedom from sin, more often than not, is to be saved by God's grace from the destructive habits of ourselves. As he becomes greater and greater in us, both in our love and in our submission to his power, the roots of sin are gradually dug out from our heart. And that won't be complete until you go to be with him in glory The men of Sodom, they provide a reminder for us that there are some who fall into sin and there are others who run into sin. The great wonder of the gospel is that in Jesus, we have someone who will pick us up when we fall and we also have a new place to run. And that is a message both for those who are lost It's also a comfort for those who are stumbling lots sons-in-law they provide this stark reminder that there are some who will laugh in their sin all the way to judgment and that's maybe the most painful reminder of the entire passage i mean we ought to be absolutely broken over the fact that there are people all around us who would just chuckle their way all the way to judgment At times, it seems like Christians or certain branches of Christians or however you want to think about that would want to hasten the judgment upon them. Oh, you're laughing? Laugh now. Like you want God to strike them with lightning or something from heaven so that they get what they deserve. It should break your heart that that possibility of judgment lingers out there and they're just laughing in their sin as they run toward it. And yet what does God do for those two sons-in-law? He's patient and merciful and gracious with them, right? He sends them a messenger to warn them about just judgment and the opportunity for mercy. The Father has sent the Son and the Son has sent his people out into the world to be a messenger of the reality of the just judgment that exists for sin and also the unbelievable hope of mercy in Jesus. Lot's wife Lot's wife reminds us that we will experience the fate of the place to which our heart belongs. Despite the great offer of salvation, some will not be able to separate their heart from that which they think they love. I mean, while running to safety, Lot's heart is still with Sodom. And so she experiences the fate of the place to which her heart belonged. The gospel tells us that by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we're made to be citizens of heaven. And that requires surrendering our citizenship here on earth. It requires setting our minds on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It requires being willing to let go of the stuff here so that we can hold singularly to Jesus. It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus has with a wealthy young guy during his ministry, who comes to him and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, with surprising confidence, I have done those for my entire life. To which Jesus says, the one thing you lack, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And how does the passage end? That guy goes away sad. Why? That's where his heart is. With his stuff. Rather than with the offer of salvation. So he will experience the fate of the place to which his heart ultimately belongs. Last, Abraham. Abraham, throughout all of these chapters of Genesis, has been a reminder that to walk with the Lord in covenant righteousness is to live as a sojourner in a broken world, a stranger, an alien. This isn't your home. You're a stranger and an alien here. You're a sojourner. Four or five times, Genesis chapter 19 makes reference to Lot's house. Where's Genesis repeatedly told us that Abraham lives? In a tent, (laughs) out by himself. Lot's a resident. Abraham is a sojourner. The New Testament tells us that as followers of Jesus, we are the same, but the good news of the gospel is that you don't walk alone. The son walks with you and will literally just hold your hand and pull you on to glory. But you also have the church, the Son's people to walk with you. This isn't your home. You're a stranger and an alien here. You don't make sense to the people of this world, but you're never alone. Yeah, your life ought to make sense in light of the place to where you're headed, not in light of the place where you live now. To walk with the Lord in covenant righteousness is to be a stranger an alien, a sojourner in a broken place. In the manifold wisdom of God, judgment and mercy exist alongside one another in perfect harmony. That's what Genesis has been laying out for us since the beginning, and it's what Genesis 19 shows to us in such stark terms. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. God in Christ you've you've not given us what it is that we deserve and God I pray that you would help us to cherish the reality of mercy. That you would give us sober understanding of sin and judgment. God that you would compel us to hold out to the world the reality of sin we don't need to shy away from calling that which is sin sin we don't need to shy away from our conviction that god is just and that he will judge oh but will we not be quiet about mercy and the wonder of the cross the unthinkable kindness of the lord to us in the sending of the Son? God, would we never lose sight of that personally? Would we never stop holding it out to the world around us? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're able to stand, would you stand and sing?